Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is the MCrit Podcast. Today on the podcast, I'm combining two pieces I was going to make into MCrit Wii's, but I figured, ah, the such good stuff. Let's just put them together, put them out as an end-of-year roundup podcast. So that's what you're going to hear today. You're going to hear my buddy Joe Scheiber talking about some surgical critical care tips for folks in the emergency department or in other ICUs. And then Sean Rees is going to talk about uh, a new sedative agent, Remy Mazalam. And so I think you're going to have a good time. And it's a great way to finish off this MCRIT year. So let's roll right in. Now, you didn't think you were going to get away that easily. Because if you're listening to this, then you're listening to the free version of this podcast. And I'm not cutting it off. It's the full audio here in um, its complete state. But I am going to tell you that if you are not a member of the MCRIT podcast, you're missing out on the best critical care for your patients. You're missing out on the most up-to-date information on resuscitation and acute critical care that's out there. You're missing out on over 60 journals worth of information that we compile each month into our Racklet reviews and that disseminate into the podcast. You're missing out on supporting the Internet Book of Critical Care and the Poem Crit Posts. All of this makes you the best possible resuscitation and critical care doctor that you could be. And yeah, sure, occasionally you'll get these free episodes, but you're missing all the stuff in between that's under a members-only paywall. So, you know, you probably have some money at the end of the year. You could write it off on your taxes. You can use it from your CME fund. So please consider joining MCRIT and becoming a member and getting all the goodness for you and your patients. So come on over to mcrit.org slash join. That address again is mcrit.org slash join. Let's get into the show. So Joe Scheiber, he's the uh, co-director of the ICU and director of ECMO and an ED intensivist all at uh, University of Florida North in Jacksonville. He came to me, he's like, there's a bunch of things that are pissing me off that I see people doing and uh, I wanted to come on the show and talk about it. I'm like, hell yeah, Joe, let's do it, man. So there you go. Let's get right into it. This is something that I've been going on on for, for years about in that Patients with chronic liver disease that come in with significant ascites, they really shouldn't be getting recurrent large volume paracentesis. That's never been shown to actually do anything but actually hasten their demise because the treatment for volume overload in ascites is high doses of diuretics. Spironolactone, 300 to 400 milligrams, that's 100 milligrams, three to four times a day and way fix because that will make the person that will counteract the endocrine effects and will make them urinate salt and water out. But when you have paracentesis, you're actually basically removing an ultrafiltrate of their plasma, hence why it's foamy. And so what are you removing? Alveum and immunoglobulins, clotting factors, all these things that the patients are so diary lacking and the reason why they're sick, which is why when you do a large volume tap, what occurs often afterwards, hypotension, AKI, how, what is the treatment to balance that out? Oh, albumin loading. The point is that you really shouldn't be doing large volume taps. Even if the patient has respiratory difficulties from tense societies, you really should be removing a small amount just to take their pressure volume curve downwards so they're not in distress, hence then back to their diuretics. Because there's statements, there's been statements out from society saying, by the way, if the patient has a thoracic thorax, meaning that they have 
Mercedes and they have a rent in their diaphragm, so they're filling the plural space. It's contradictory with the place of chest tube for those patients because you will simply be siphoning off nearly their ultrafiltrate. But doing it in such a continuous fashion, patients that have a large volume of ascites, if you're not careful, you'll look and you know, these patients, once you either come to the ED or even the primary medical doctor will refer them to INR, beginning like six, eight liters off once a week. And other shops and I'm here for my heterostentesis. And I try to educate them. No, that's not a good thing. Not just putting a needle through the valvular wall repetitively is a iatrogenic risk factor for bowel injury infection, but you should not be removing you are basically, I tell them, your serum by your abdominal wall. And only time I consider doing it is if the patient really is already a comfort care only. And if that's the case, they really should just get an abdominal drain place to a gravity bag so they can open and close it at home and not have to continually coming back. But it really is not a recommended therapy to do repetitively because it really will cause a decline in that patient's basically of their overall function. I completely agree with you, Joe. Let's make this really logistical. So a patient does come in, let's say you're down in the emergency department on a rare shift down there, and they're having some respiratory distress that you really think is from tensocytes. How much would you take off on that patient? At that point, I would, again, be trying to support their respiratory status. And again, what's the definition of tensocytes? Mine is that if I can't actually pinch their valvular wall, then I can still get my fingers on it and pinch it as however much ascites is in there slashing around, it's not tense. It's like saying, can you pinch a, a basketball? No, you cannot because it's under too much pressure. So I have that person in a good position, typically a head up, leg down, or Dellenberg, some positive pressure to a system, whether that's bivap or high flow. And I would go ahead and paracentesis until I feel like, and that would typically be one liter at a time, until I feel like their abdomen is becoming softer. Not to set a world record of how many bottles can I get out of the patient. That's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to just take them down that pressure volume curve. So they're actually now not on the flat end, they're on a, on a, on a, on the sharp end where I'm actually reducing the pressure quickly without that much volume coming out. And that, in my experience, can be as little as one to two liters. Okay, next up. So if a patient has an ET2 cuff problem, whether you just got the patient intubated and it turns out that even though you checked your cuff on the way going down, it got lacerated on a sharp tooth or on another piece of equipment, or even if it's, you know, hours or days later and you realize this cuff is blown, it's not holding air, how to do a tube exchange when you're just by yourself, I think is not so difficult as long as you have it in your brain how to do it. So you use what I, my best experience is, because sometimes you're just by yourself. So instead of having another set of hands that you can rely upon, doing a variety to do exchange, I think can be problematic because if you put a cath an exchange catheter down and you take one tube out, placing a new tube, oftentimes you actually will get hung up in the airway and you don't know what you're getting hung up on. So it's still best to visualize it. So I'll take a vanilla endoscope, insert it in the mouth, typically have the can't excuse me, have the screen on the patient's chest. If I can't, right next to them so I can be in the best position where my hands are, are in the airway without having to turn and look at some awkward angle, and I will see actually my tube in the airway of the fleet my cuff. I'll do a tube exchange, and not a bougie. Bougies are shorter, and you actually don't want the tip being so hyperextended because that will actually catch your tube. You don't want that, so you do want to use a cook tube exchanger, put it down, now you have both hands that you can manipulate the tube, one tube out, 
next tube in and you can watch and often the tube, the new tube will be getting hung up on the arachnoids or in the posterior part of the lecture. And so you can manipulate the tube by rotating it and watch yourself passing down to the vocal cords. Then you can inflate your cuff and tube out. So you have both hands to manipulate it as compared to trying to watch with a DL where while you're now having problems because you're hung up with doing it blind, now having to actually take your hands off the tube and do a laryngoscopy. So you're saying have a video laryngoscopy, you put it into the right position, take your hands off it. Correct. Yeah, if you put it in the position, you can typically watch it on the screen with your hands off of it. You have both hands free for doing your, your tube that you're catheter down, tube out, catheter in, rotating it. You have both hands. Now, if you have partners, if you have people that can help you, that's great. But I've done this so many times. Again, for about two years, we ran a community hospital's ICU here in Jacksonville. And it was a terrible contract, but it was single attentivists during the day. No ARPs, no PAs. It was me and 18 bed units. So I had to do everything myself. And so that's when I first started doing this. And I, it's much better than a blind exchange, but it gives you, it gives you the best of having a good look. I've done this before. The, the key is if the, at the very end, after you have the new tube on the airway exchange catheter, if at that moment, the hypopharynx is a little bit collapsed, then you could absolutely put your hand back on the laryngoscope to get the lift because you only need one hand at that point. But the actual manipulations outside the mouth, yeah, it just sits there and you do what you need to do. All right. Next, my friend. Back when I was having to deal pretty much everything, like in this situation I mentioned. So after a patient's intubated, then a resuscitation, if I'm now at the point where I know that I need lines, I need a line and central line, you can consider doing both one prep, one drape, which is an axillary, because it's one line where you don't have to be at the head of the bed like an IJ. And for an IJ, really right hand and left hand that either side of the neck you're okay with. But that's not true for femorals. So if you're going to do a femoral A-line or a femoral central line, both, if you're right-handed or left-handed, you have a preference one side or the other, obviously. But subclavian and axillary, it doesn't matter since you're lined up uh, you know, perpendicular to the patient. The difference is, obviously, axillary is so much safer because if the patient, one, it's a compressible site, and two, you're not actually entering near the pleural space. So if the patient is a chronic lung disease patient, hyperinflated, or they already have significant lung disease, you're not worried about causing an pneumothorax. So I got a lot of times in the habit then of intubating, stepping right around the head, prepping one XL up, having both kits ready for an A-line central line, placing both literally within five minutes, one dressing, and I was had the patient completely ready to go for their ongoing resuscitation. Now, I love this. And in fact, I put in an article in the literature of using axillary vein preferentially in patients with a coagulopathy. So I'm on the same page as you, but I really want to break this down logistically for the audience because I, I know what you're talking about. I'm not sure they do. So you're actually cannulating axillary vein and axillary artery in the axilla, yeah. which is super safe. And obviously you're using an ultrasound guidance. Now, listeners, Joe corrected me here. He does not often use ultrasound guidance. He is going blind. He feels the artery and then extrapolates the position of the vein. I personally do not recommend that. Um, Joe has done a ton of these, and that's all well and good. Uh, I'd say just use the ultrasound. It, Yeah, it's a pain in the ass to get the machine set up, but once you do, it's such a pleasure to cannulate these axillary vessels uh, with ultrasound. You could really clearly see the artery and vein, and then you could stick needles in them. Do you choose a longer central line? Do you have nursing pushback about, oh, this is dirty because it's in their armpit with a central line there. 
And do you ever have issues with using it for things like TPN? Because sometimes the length will not quite reach all the way down into the SVC. It might be a slightly higher line. If you're doing right axillary, most of the time on your x-ray, but most people I've ever seen don't even know that it's an axillary based on the x-ray. It looks like it's a subclavian because of the track it takes. If you're using a regular, a 20 centimeter triple lumen, it ends up fine. If you're using a 15 centimeter, it'll probably end up, it'll be an essential vein. It just won't necessarily be in your mid or distal SCC. It'll probably be at your, at your confluence of your brachiocephalic and rental jugular, which is fine. Remember, in the old days, that's where most pick lines ended up. Pick lines didn't really end up in your SVC. They ended up in a central vein. They came up the arm and ended up somewhere in, in your, again, distal brachial brachiocephalic. So it's fine. But no, I don't have any, I've never had nurses give me a hard time about, oh, the fact that it's dirty. Because obviously, the Excel, if you tap it correctly and drape it, they like the fact that the arm, especially the A-line, is in a good position. It doesn't kink. The arm can be moved anywhere. The A-line is a good A-line. Again, I stopped doing radials for the most part in fellowship because I didn't want to place one and then be placing one again hours or days later because they just come out so easily when you're mobilizing a patient. So I do placing either femoral or axillary A-lines, and I would probably prefer the axillary because I do believe it's a better line and, and probably gives you more accurate information. Now, Joe, that's fantastic. All right, what are we up in? So remember, for almost any type of shock, if you walk through an ICU, most patients' heart rates are around 100, 110, right, 115. It's just a, it's not just common because I think one is a, a appropriate heart rate when someone is actually in distress or in shock. That being said, I don't necessarily want my patient's heart rates. If, if my patient is in septic shock and the heart rate is 100, I don't necessarily want the heart rate to be 120, 130. I think that it would be fine for it to stay around 100, 110. But if their heart rate is 70 and they're in septic shock, that's not normal. That's not appropriate. I've seen older patients with permanent pacemakers and their heart rate is 60. And they're now in septic shock, and they have a low cardiac output, cardiac index, and they're on Riva Bivafidazepressin. And what that patient needs is their permanent pacemaker to be set to something like 90. To go from 60 to 90, you will improve that person's cardiac output virtually by a 50%, and you'll spare that spare their pressures. And so you just have to call cardiology, or if you're actually in that community place. Find out what pacemaker they have and call that company rep and say, please come in here. I need to have this set from 60 to 90. Hemorrhagic shock, septic shock, they cannot continue with that heart rate of 60. That patient really will be suffering. Dude, that's the tip of the show so far because I don't think many community docs will ever think about that. And it's game changing. They could have a patient on like three pressors and inotropes and all they needed was an additional cardiac output from that. That's brilliant. That's correct. Yep. Exactly. All right. Love it. Joe, this has been amazing. Why don't you tell us about the two books you've written that are already out there and then the book that is in uh, planning stages right now? Sure. First book came out, I think, probably about two years ago or so. Springer, it's uh, Emergency Department Critical Care. And I believe it's probably the first book, 100% by EM intensivists. Every primary author of the chapter is an EM intensivist. The second book that came out probably less than a year ago was Critical Care of COVID in the Emergency Department that, again, was all written by EM intensivists to provide care on the critical care of COVID 
in the emergency department. And please, if you're interested, you know, one of those, I probably can look them up online, both through Amazon. Put a link in the show notes. And then the next book that is underway is Surgical Critical Care Outside of the SIPU. And so that is, again, for people that have the, have had special, you know, surgical care, we have a pre-op, post-operative that are in community hospitals being cared for by, again, emergency department, general surgeons, general intensivists, oftentimes even hospitalists are tasked with taking care of these patients. So it's going to give some guidance on some of these more specific, complex surgical patients and what kind of things you can do for them. Joe, I can't thank you enough for coming on. This has been fantastic. Scott, thanks for the invitation. I really appreciate it. Now, let's talk about a brand new sedative agent, Remy Mazalam. I had never heard of this until Sean Reese approached me to talk about it. So let's roll with that. So yeah. who are you and what do you do? I'm Sean Reese. I'm the director of emergency medicine at Steele Memorial Medical Center, which is a critical access hospital in Eastern Oregon. That's a beautiful scenery wise. It's very rural. The nearest referral centers for things like STEMIs and strokes and whatnot are close to three hours away. Yep. And Sean, you were also one of our RLA fellows and friggin' brilliant and an amazing logophile and just always had so many good insights and things to offer. And you wrote me and you're like, I have this new sedation med called, Re I'm probably not even going to pronounce it, so I'll leave that to you. And I'm like, dude, I've never even heard of this. Why don't you do some research, do a few cases and, and come back and report to the show? So that's what we're going to do today. So what drug are we talking about here, Sean? We're talking about Remimazolam, not as hard to pronounce as Idarucizumab, but so it's Remimazolam. It first came around probably about actually 10 years ago. It got bumped from one pharmaceutical to another, set on some back burners, and then eventually came more to the forefront. Although it came to the forefront in the 2020 range, and the pharmaceutical companies obviously had other things they were focusing on with the pandemic. But then in 2020, it was approved in the United States for procedural sedation in adults lasting less than 30 minutes. As the name implies, it's a derivative of midazolam. If you look in the literature, there's some sources that actually say it's a combination of midazolam and remifentanil. It is not. And a couple of sources also say it's lipophilic. It is not. So just be careful when you look at that, that you don't get fooled into thinking those things. Um, what they did was they took midazolam, did some minor changes, substituting one halogen for another that didn't really do things. But the main thing they did was add the ester side chain. And by adding that ester side chain made it susceptible to esterases. And the nice thing about it is that the esterases are not tissue specific. So it's not part of the P450 system which is what midazolam is metabolized through the P450 system. But it's in the cytosol and rough endoplasmic reticulum. And I know I'm getting a little specific there, but it's those enzymes are in um, the small intestine, the liver, the lung, the kidney. And so even patients that have cirrhosis and whatnot are still okay to use this drug. A lot of the listeners have probably used drugs that or sound similar like remifentanil, which is actually a derivative of carfentanil and not fentanyl. So it went fentanyl, carfentanil, 
Remy fentanyl, but just Remy Mazdalam, they added that side chain, which made it susceptible to the esterases. So that's how it got started and how it's metabolized. So basically, from what you're saying, even in a patient with cirrhosis or kidney failure, we're going to have a fairly consistent metabolism of this drug. So that already is putting it above midazolam. Is the duration of action shorter than midazolam? The main thing is the duration of action is a bit shorter because of the way it's metabolized. Now, the exact information has been kind of hard to pin down because everyone talks about the pharmacodynamic parameters like half-life, terminal half-life, not the useful stuff. I mean, farm folks out there, if you're listening to this, please, please, in addition to the true pharmacodynamic data, add in clinically relevant data, add in what I call the DORCA, the duration of relevant clinical action. Tell me, for the purposes of moderate to deep sedation, this agent will keep the patient down for X number of minutes. I know it's not this precise scientific crap that you want to portray, but it's what would actually be helpful to clinicians. So please, someone tell me the information on all the drugs that is clinically relevant as well as toxicologically relevant. But okay, enough of that rant. So the best I could determine from all of the literature is if you get a patient to that borderline between modern and deep sedation, they're gonna be out for somewhere about six to 10 minutes. That's seemingly what you're looking for. Now, my experience with the Dazolam, regardless of what the studies say, is if you actually take them to that same point, it's gonna be a big chunk of time probably on the order of 20, 25 minutes at the minimum for some patients with a, a metabolism issue uh, that's relevant to metazolam. It's going to be even longer than that. So you're talking about at least having the time of these patients being out is the best I could discover. And Sean's experience was something like the guy uh, he sedated most recently was back up in eight to 10 minutes. You know, so uh, you're, you're definitely shortening the time as to how much I think it really probably is patient dependent, but quite, quite a chunk of time cut out by using Remy Mazolam rather than Midazolam. So Sean, from what I'm hearing about all, this is probably going to have the same respiratory depressive potential of Midazolam, which is virtually none in the absence of synergistic effects from things like opioids. But I guess if there was respiratory depression, it would just last a shorter period of time. Is that a fair statement? That's a fair statement because I think it's metabolized a bit quicker. Yeah. So I'm still struggling to find a space for where this is going to be better than, than my typical regimen right now, which is pretty much propofol for everyone. I guess there, I almost think, Sean, and you tell me if I'm crazy, but this would seem to have more help to me in the emergency department for instead of procedural sedation actually you know agitated patient sedation where you want to give something and a lot of these patients were sedating they have alcoholism that's chronic and they might have liver effects and i'll give them the five and two which for me is always droperidol and midazolam and they'll be knocked out for a good many hours this one might have the potential to make a shorter duration of them rotting in my department because I really just want to take the edge off and then have them wake up in a couple hours. On those kind of patients, Haldol and Remimazolam would be a better choice than Droperidol and Midaz where they're really going to be knocked down. What are your feelings on the actual utility of this drug, Sean? Well, certainly from what has been studied in, it's been almost predominantly all colonoscopy kind of stuff. A little bit of bronchoscopy, a little bit of EGD, but almost all predominantly colonoscopy and they've done it in ASA class one to four and all that and all that stuff. I think the only issue maybe with using it in the situation you just described is that 
it's going to wear off much faster and their agitation may rear its ugly head much quicker than you want it to. It can be redosed. The nice thing about it is that it's not weight-based really dosing. And so the predominant dosing in the studies have been starting with five milligrams. And then if you need to redose it, half of that. But you may be redosing it on a much more frequent basis than something like the straight midazolam bell type of medications. Just to clarify that, I was talking about a very specific circumstance that maybe folks don't run into at places outside the big academic shops. But I am constantly in a situation where I have a patient who's clearly psychotic or at least has a serious psychiatric condition that needs the psyche D to take him, but they won't come. And so we wind up because he's a danger to himself and the staff. It's usually a man, sometimes a woman, but usually a man, um, having to sedate the patient. And then when psych finally shows up, the patient's completely comatose. And they're like, well, call us when he wakes up. And then we have to call them like six hours later. And the patient wakes up and he's a raving maniac again. And so it's either like let him, you know, pound his head against the wall or hope that the stars align and psych shows up at just the moment he wakes up. It never works out. I'd love to have an agent that would not have respiratory depression. I could put the patient down and know that in 10 minutes when psych actually arrives, uh, he'd be relatively awake and accessible. So I just wonder if Remy Mazalam may fill this niche. All right. Are there any contraindications or anything else we need to know about this drug that's different than what we already know about midazolam? Or is that pretty much a midaz? Yeah, pretty much. The only thing, that, unusual thing I saw, and these are more with infusions for the, or the repeated doses for the colonoscopy was some involuntary myoclonic jerking motions, which maybe for someone who had like a unstable cervical spine fracture or something where you really don't want them to be moving at all, it wouldn't be the greatest of choices. But for everything else, I think comparing it to midazolam with just a much shorter half-life is a fair statement. And the biggest thing comparing it to propofol is more the hemodynamic effects that you can avoid and the longer enough effect that you can avoid. All right, now you actually use this in an actual procedural sedation. Tell us a little bit about that and how it went. Yeah, so we used it for a 61-year-old male who had a history of paroxysmal AF. He was in the process of getting EP mapping done, but he kept on going into AFib. And so we went through all the normal procedural sedation, check pre-checklist stuff that you would go through for any procedural sedation, and then gave him uh, five milligrams. And that was all we needed to give him dose-wise. And this was a big guy. I think it was 120, 125 kilograms. So he wasn't a small man, but we still, five milligrams is what we gave him. And he went from five to four. I'm using the modified observer assessment of alertness score. So he went from five to four in about a minute. Um, and then just under three minutes, he was at a two, was able to do the cardio version at that point. He did the typical, ow, and then fell back asleep. And then over the next few minutes, went from three to four to five. And he was back to his baseline in just under nine <coughs> minutes from the original push of the, of the uh, Remy Mazolam. 
Okay, Sean, you're a director. That, what if all your guys and gals just started using this instead of Medaz for a lot of reasons that weren't necessary? patient had a perfectly functional liver, they would have been fine, much akin to IV Tylenol when it was still super expensive. Is this a problem? Is this something we should be limiting, you think? Or is it just use your judgment? I think for right now, I wouldn't step out and limit it. I'm also the medical director of the pharmacy and therapeutics committee. So, so I get to kind of, now I get to double dip a little bit there. But I think- the utility early on is not only our staff, but if we're able to spread the word via this type of format or other, if we do a case series, is just getting a better handle on the medication so that maybe as we pare things down a little bit more, we're very versed as to how it works, what to watch out for, what not to watch out for, and those types of things. All right. So I wouldn't limit it right away. Got it. Anything else we need to know about this medication right now, Sean? I don't think so. Just that it's out there and that it has these effects. It, safety profile is super safe. And in the right patient, I think it's a very good choice. Sean, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me, Scott. I really appreciate it. All right. So how do I sum up this Remy Maslam stuff? I don't know. I don't know. This is kind of an agent searching for a purpose in emergency medicine and critical care right now. I think where this agent has real utility is if you're going to have a proceduralist who is not really competent in advanced airway management, you know, your GI doctors, your pulmonologists who aren't doing a lot of critical care. Um, for those folks, this is a very compelling option for their procedures if they're not going to have some form of anesthesia professional with them. You know, in the past, that role was filled by Medaz Fentanyl. I never liked that idea. That scared the hell out of me. Um, or, you know, they tried to um, get propofol as a non-anesthesia medication. That's a constant war in the United States. I don't like that idea either. I'd rather have an anesthesia person or a CRNA there. Um, so this actually is pretty compelling for that purpose because without opioids, uh, the respiratory depression risk is very, very low. These patients will wake up quickly. They don't need extended time of monitoring in the office, and they're not going to get great monitoring in that office anyway. Um, if someone was going to do a procedure on me without someone from anesthesia there, this is probably the agent I'd want them to use. Now, for the emergency medicine world, does this bring much to the table? No. Uh, I'm either doing deep sedation or anxiolysis. Moderate sedation doesn't really exist in my world, and that's what this agent seems primed for is moderate sedation, not not deep sedation. Um, I had mentioned uh, having the ability to rapidly tranquilize someone and have them wake up seems appealing, though it's kind of expensive for that purpose. I, we didn't mention the cost. Um, from what I could find, a vial of this probably costs on the order of, uh, let's see, I have it right here, $42 for a 20 milligram Remy Mazolam vial, which means that'll get you through the entire sedation, uh, versus a 20 ml vial of propofol in that same system, $9 to $13. So, you know, about four times as much. And a 50 milligram vial of Medaz is $12 to $15. So again, about four times as much. So not crazy, but still pretty expensive comparatively, uh, especially in aggregate. Um, now, where this seems really interesting to me is if it has utility as a sedation agent in the ICU, because it supposedly doesn't accumulate, and since its metabolism is standardized regardless of the patient's liver function, um, that would be interesting. Uh, you know, I, I'm down on benzodiazepines for sedation because they don't wear off. They just accumulate, even with the daily wake-up. It's a big, big problem. Um, maybe this is the better agent for that. Now, we still might have issues with um, a patient 
who is becoming too deeply sedated, you know, between wake-up periods with this. And that that's why things like dexmedetomidine and propofol at the right dosing are so appealing. But maybe this does have a functional use in the ICU. But that evidence has not even been broached yet. That has to emerge. So this has been Scott Weingart for the MCRIP podcast saying bye-bye, and I'll see you in the new year. I always add here that if you're thinking about the past year and how you performed and think your performance game could be upped in your career, think that you could actually fix your productivity, make your efficiency better. Uh, Maybe you have a new role coming in the new year of leadership and you're like, what the hell do I do? Or uh, maybe your end of year performance reviews with your department have not been stellar. They're like, oh my God, if you don't fix this, it's going to start being a problem. If any of these things are running through your mind at this now, right before the new year, then consider coming on over to medicine coaching and uh, we could fix that stuff. Uh, we specialize in physician and medical professional coaching for the exact things I've mentioned. So if any of that seems interesting, just come on over to mcourt.org slash coaching and uh, we will get you all fixed up. And uh, I hope to talk to you soon. Bye.